listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. Well, I'm excited to be uh, back in the state of Georgia from my, my trips last week. Um, Nick, I know we uh, we did a pretty good job of recording a, a decent episode while I was across the border in Canada. And and now that I'm back, seems like you've had some, some pretty exciting adventures the last week as well, huh? Yeah, I did a damn fool thing. I went to uh, Cabela's and off the cuff bought a fly rod and bought waders and went fly fishing the next day <laughs> and uh and i loved it it, it was awesome um i actually talked talked to our friend uh rob jones last week about it and he kind of just mentioned well you want to go fishing uh, sunday and i was like already you know i was right. just talking about buying stuff and um you know they are they, they, they were having a Memorial Day uh, sale or Memorial Weekend sale at Cabela's, and I went and picked my stuff up. And uh, and we had a another friend, John Mudry, um, who's – Rob and I are complete newbies. John's been doing this a while. Um, he went with us, uh, showed us some spots where I actually turkey hunt. It was actually right by – right on the Rogue River off by where I turkey hunt there or have before. And um, we went out, and we spent from about 6 a.m. to noon – and uh walked the river and man it was a blast I, I hooked my first brown trout um lost a couple more trying to land them one i had right up i my my best fish i had about a 12 inch brownie i didn't i didn't hear you say anything in your equipment list about a landing net <laughs> no i didn't get a landing net and i was told that you didn't need a landing net so, so what happened to that big brown <laughs> I got it right up to the surface and in my hand, and I went to uh, I went to unhook it and get a picture, and I dropped it. <laughs> You're not supposed to drop. It. And uh, I and what's funny is I think I heard Rob about forty yards away yell, "Should have got that landing net." <laughs> Rob, but man, I tell you what, I'm hooked. I mean, this is kind of a year of firsts, and this is the first thing I wanted to try. Um, my woods, uh, my exposure to the woods and the outdoors, you know, I mean, other than when I was a kid and I, we did a little bit of rock bass fishing and pike and perch and stuff like that. A lot of spin cast and I did some lake trout fishing. Um, and I never really did. I never did any fly fishing. My dad didn't fly fish. He was more of a salmon fisherman. Um, and, uh, never, never did that. And, and I'm starting to expand a little bit. I want, I want to do more outside and, uh, this is this is a really cool way for me to do it because I live right off the rogue and I'm five six minutes away from a bunch of great spots and tributaries. So I'm gonna duck out tomorrow at lunch if the weather's all right. Um, it's raining real bad right now though, and I know we got a storm coming in, so I don't know how that's gonna be. But um, I've already got plans to hit the river quite a bit, and um, I'm really excited about it and excited to learn. I, I thought it was gonna be a lot harder than it is to get started, but it really it really wasn't. Um, I got over that quick and there's so many resources out there now on, on, online that, I mean, and you want to learn anything from tying knots to casting to landing to everything else. I mean, it's all on YouTube now. So, you know, I, I've, I think I'll, I'll make up ground quickly. You will. And, but, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, yeah. you go have to now make a trip down South to, uh, try some trout fishing in, in Georgia. So we've got some, we've got some really good waters here so 
Yeah, and, and you know, this kind of segues us into our guest because that was the first thing new I wanted to try this year. Now, the second thing I want to try is some black powder honey. Yes, I do know so, that, and and that and, is a good segue. Um, you actually uh, came to me, a, a, well, I guess it's been about a month ago, uh, wanted to reach out to our guest, and uh, on, the, on the other end of the line, we've got um, Dennis Neely, who the first time I spoke to Dennis, he was real quick to correct me and say he prefers to be called Denny, so I'm going to do my best to call him Denny from now on, but uh, so Denny is a, an author, a historian, um, blogger, and for the purpose of, of this conversation, most importantly, perhaps a black powder enthusiast. Uh, he owns and maintains the website traditionalblackpowderhunting.com. And I've spent uh, really probably more time than I should have over the last few weeks uh, on that website. And it's, I'll be honest, it's its just chock full of information and, and the creative writing is just fantastic. Um, there's there's how-to articles. There's articles detailing the basics of hunting with, with traditional black powder arms. And then there's also so a, a, a fantastic series of writings that, that Denny's doing surrounding and so I know there's there's one persona that I've kind of got attached to. I think there may be a couple more. And Denny, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but I th- it's uh, Mesco Wagosh. Is that correct, Denny? That's pretty close. Well, correct me. <laughs> no, no, no. You're you're right on. It it's uh, uh, Ojibwe, and it is it means red fox. And then there's some other personas too, correct? Yes, um, I over. I've done this for forty years now, and I have uh, started out really as a voyager, uh, and that persona evolved into a po- what would be called a post hunter, an individual that was hired by a fur trading post to provide meat for them. Muskowagosh came about uh, after twenty twelve. Uh, I hunt on the North Forty. I don't really go to exotic places to hunt. I stay pretty much right on the farm. Mm-hmm. And in uh, 2012, we got devastated by EHD. And we lost mm-hmm. about 75, 80% of our deer herd. And in the process of that, in the fall, uh, landowners all around us, pretty everybody pretty well agreed that unless it was a huge buck or an old buck or an injured deer, nobody was going to take a deer. And so before you ever go out hunting, you know you're not going to get a shot. And that's one of the great things about traditional black powder hunting is that you don't necessarily need to to, uh, take a shot to have a wonderful time in the woods. And I sat there and I was thinking about it, and a lot of my readings had been about uh, returned captives in the early 1800s. There was a lot of individuals who had been uh, captured in their youth, were adopted into Native American families, which was a common practice, spent some time with those families, and returned to white society and then wrote about it. And that's a tremendous source of information about what life was like in the 18th century. Wow! So that's that, that's that's great. That's awesome. Um, and and 2012 was indeed a really bad year. EHD was just terrible down here. Um, I, I remember that. It, uh, it was. This is Nick, correct? Yeah, this is Nick. Okay, it was. 
so bad, the stench was so bad in the woods that it drove the squirrels out of our out of our hardwoods. They actually left the woods. And uh, there was a period of probably three or four weeks that we just couldn't go into the woods. It was unbelievable. Just well, totally so you, unbelievable. So you really, I have some friends on the east side. I'm, I'm, I'm from Michigan too, just like you are. And there was, um, I had some friends on the east side that got hit pretty bad. So it sounds like you were in a real bad area. Yes. Um, so that's, that's unfortunate. I think we're, I mean, we're still recovering from that. Yes. Well, we haven't had, I, I will say we haven't had anything like that here uh, in Georgia, although um, we've actually got a, a potential change to our um, regulations coming up. In fact, I'm planning on actually going and sitting in on a, a DNR hearing in a couple of weeks. They're, they're talking about introducing um, baiting statewide. And there's a lot of us that are really worried about the potential for spreading disease if they, you know, if that if that passes. So we'll see what that happens. But I've never had to I've never had to deal with anything like that here yet. Let's just let's hope it stays that way. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. But there is a silver lining to it, and the silver lining that came out of it is as I sat in the woods one day uh, with a number of turkeys that flew down right around me uh, shortly after daylight. Um, I just got thinking and said, hey, you know, you've done all these readings. You've looked at all this history about the return captives. What if you did a persona uh, based on that? And uh, that really was an impetus uh, to, to get started with Muscoa Gauche. That was, that was the basis of it. And I think it was a positive because my trading post hunter, um, he was getting um, a little bit... Uh, too familiar. Um, I wasn't moving forward and learning like I like I really wanted to, and so it was a great opportunity for me. And it was the big plus that came out of a bad situation. Man, this is so interesting for me to hear, Denny. I just, I mean, everybody loves a good story, and you are like living the story in a way, and through hunting, which is even cooler. Um, and I mean, we have, I know, I know of two people that do, um, we're tra- Steve and I are traditional bow hunters and I know of two people in Michigan that do like reenactment style hunting, um, in period dress and, and change their, and you know, they're always talking about their next character and things of that nature. And, and I'm just fascinated by all that. Um, it just adds a, a totally cool new element to everything. But I think I think what we do is we circle back around to that and and to start, let's talk about you. Let's talk about who who is who is Denny? Who is Denny Neely? And how did you get started in all this? Well, I got started in this when I was in in hunting when I was about 13 years old. Uh, I was given a, a recurve bow for uh, Christmas. Uh, I like shooting the bow. We spent the summer shooting. Uh, I wanted to do something different. And that, in that era, uh, you had to be 14 to hunt deer with a, with a firearm. And, uh, but you could hunt at any age with the bow. And I basically started deer hunting uh, with a bow. And uh, one thing you know, led to another. I got old enough to take uh, hunter safety. Um, I took the hunter safety through the 4-H. Uh, I ended up uh, 
we spent a lot of time shooting pellet guns as kids. Uh, Morton F. was a big influence in that at that time. And uh, from there, uh, we just kind of eased into deer hunting, although in this part of the state at that time, there were very few deer. And in the late 70s, uh, in the mid-70s really, Michigan came up with this muzzleloading deer season. And the first couple of years, I didn't participate. I didn't get the one year I didn't get a deer, and the DNR allowed you to use your buck tag in the muzzleloading season. And so I borrowed a Civil War reenactor's Zoav rifle, which was 68 caliber. I had shot the gun before, and I knew what it could do. And I basically took that gun hunting, and I hunted. Uh, in the clothing that I normally wore, which was bib overhauls, and and I had a uh, green and black checked uh, wool coat and a uh, stocking cap. And uh, I can remember very vividly on the one morning, it was a light snow falling, and we had a I had a, a six point buck following a doe, and it ended up across the swamp from me. It stopped at about forty five yards and. I cocked that gun and I fired. Snow flew all over the place and I had <laughs> shot just underneath its belly. And I was a little perturbed because as I grew up, um, we kept looking for new challenges to shoot at. And my dad gave up uh, one afternoon when we were shooting and uh, he pulled a bunch of dimes out of his pocket and set the dimes up, and we were shooting at dimes. And when the dimes were all gone, because you'd hit them, they'd go flying, and you'd never find them, um, I was a reasonably good shot, and I was quite perturbed that I missed that deer. And I walked over and checked and made sure that I hadn't hit it, and came back, and by the time I was walking back over the swamp, that gun barrel was quite warm, and I had to walk through the cloud of sulfurous smoke that was still hanging over the swamp. And I sat back down, and I started just thinking about the gun, thinking what had just happened. And I started wondering, I wonder what it was like for the fellows that came back from the Civil War, came back to the family farms and were hunting. And as I sat there dreaming back in Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone terms from TV, um, I started uh, drifting farther back, and I ended up wondering what, you know, who had walked on that farm uh, in the fur trade era. And uh, that basically came to one question, what was it really like to hunt and to survive and to live in the Northwest Territory back in the, the late 1700s. And once that question came up, I was hooked. So Now, now Denny, I have to ask, is the, the black powder firearm you were using that day, was it, was it a, the, quote, traditional black powder um, firearm, or was it more the percussion cap type? It was a well, okay. They, both percussion and, and flintlock would be considered tradition, traditional. Um, for the most part, you're talking about an arm that's got a side hammer to it. Uh, in the case of this particular gun, it was from, I believe, reproduction of a gun from the 1863 era 
from the Civil War, so it was in the percussion era. Right. And and uh, it was uh, it was what I had borrowed and what I started out with, and it was you know was a legal arm. It's kind of interesting to note from a Michigan standpoint that the fellows that that really pushed for the sea the muzzleloading season in Michigan really wanted a flintlock only season, which would have put me out of the ballpark on on that particular hunt. But Pa Keeler was the one that was uh, real knowledgeable about the shooter, black powder shooters in Michigan. And there was at that time, and there still is, a big swath right up the middle of the state that is really primarily um, percussion shooters. And he knew that a lot of people would get shot out of it if they made it flintlock only. So in the final stages of creating the season, they allowed percussion guns as well. So that's that, that's interesting, uh, and I, I guess I made an assumption. Um, and now, so I've shot flintlock black powder firearms before, but I've never hunted with one. Uh, hunted many years with a percussion uh, style. So I just, I guess I made an assumption that the. When you when you're talking about traditional black powder, you were talking about flintlock only. But I guess it's as long as the 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 firearm that you're using for that period was percussion, then it's still considered traditional. As long as it's not the the shot shell primer type modern muzzleloaders, correct? Well, in that era, you're talking in the early seven mid seventies. That would be true, um, but that has changed. In probably the last 10 years. And what I do is I am a traditional black powder hunter. And where Nick had said he knows a couple, uh, there's quite a few of us in the state of Michigan. And the first thing you would note is you probably will never see us in the woods. Because if we're living a history scenario in the woods... Any modern hunter does not fit in to, in my case, a 1790s scenario. So if I'm out in the woods and I see a modern hunter uh, in the neighboring property, I slip away from that person and they disappear from my 18th century consciousness. And so you will rarely see us because everybody tries to avoid anything that reminds them of, you know, modern society. Huh. That's... So that's definitely, so it's definitely, uh, you're just, you're taking that state of mind to a whole new level because you're, you're trying to, you don't want to be reminded just like I, like, you know, if I'm bow hunting in the woods or something like that, I, I'm the same way. Like, I don't want to be around... If I see a tree stand, I'm usually headed another direction. Or if I see, I want to get away from a road or, or something like that, somewhere where I'm in total quiet. Or, you know, if I see a house, I walk further or something like that. But that this is like a whole new level of like it's interrupting your what you're doing. Like it's a big part of what you're doing. It's the fantasy. That's uh, that's that's cool. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. <laughs> well, and Nick, sometimes the word fantasy. Um, uh... 
as my wife says, how else can adults dress up and have so much fun? Because she's a traditional hunter, too. Um, sometimes, though, the fantasy becomes very much reality. And that's the, the point at which we, we as traditional hunters, uh, try to get to. We try to get to a position that we experience a pristine moment where we don't know what the century is, what time it is. We don't know that we're in the 21st century, but what we're doing parallels what we've read about from the hunter heroes that we've we've fashioned our hunting style after. Interesting. So I, I have a I have a question for you, Denny. Um, so where does the persona start? Like you know, like it, I think of like a football player where a coach says, you know, flip the switch, get ready for the game, or and you know that with me that would always start when I put the helmet on. And is that kind of what it's like when, when I mean, do you, when you put the shirt on or you put the cap on or you or you step into the woods? I mean, where does that persona kind of start for you before a hunt? It depends. What you try to do as a traditional hunter, and this, it, and I want to go back to what Steve's comment of you know what constituted traditional, in, in a minute here. But what you do as a traditional woodsman is you try to remove everything in your environment that is a link to modern society. What you want to do is you want to put on the clothing that a hunter that you respected in, in my particular case, in the 1790s, what a hunter would wear uh, from head to toe to the point that my clothing is hand-sewn because they didn't have machines, sewing machines in that era. But you try to wrap yourself up in everything 18th century. And then when you get out there in the woods, you try to block out anything that's modern. And that gets to be real difficult at times. But you don't know when you're going to step over time's threshold. There are some times you can go in the woods for three or four hours, and no matter how hard you try, you never mentally return back to the 1790s. There are other times that you aren't even out the back door, and your mind is in the 1790s, and uh, you don't even see anything else that's, that's uh, modern. Well, I can, I can, I can kind of, I can kind of relate to that a little bit though, because there are days I know when I step outside and I'm going hunting and I got the bow in my hand, like I know that it it feels different that day. Like I feel connected. Um, all three, you know, whenever I've killed a deer, it was a special morning. Like, you know, whether the frost was on the ground and I felt connected to it, I just felt like, you know, everything was still and I was just totally into it. And there was other mornings where I've got a lot going on in my life and I can't seem to shake it. Like, it's just not going, you know, I'll go sit in the woods forever. Like you said, I'll sit in the woods for hours and I'll still be connected to the life. I'm not, I'm not where I should be. And, uh, I've missed a lot of opportunities that way because I wasn't paying attention. Um, 
but I can totally, I can totally get what you're saying where, you know, sometimes you step outside and you're just like, yeah, I feel it today. It's, it's, it's a beautiful crisp day in October. You know, it's, it's, this is, there's nowhere I'd rather be. You know, I feel like I, Howard Hill, Fred Bear, anybody, you know, um, cause that's kind of where I go. That, that's kind of my era, but. Well, you raise a really important point and in a lot of the outdoor shows that we do, um, we will get guests at the show that will come in and say, you know, Danny, I really like reading your articles in Woods and Water News. Uh, I like reading your blog, but I'm really a traditional. I'm, I'm an archer. I'm a traditional archer. I'm into recurves, whatever. And I don't try to convince you not to do that. What I would rather see you do as an archer, and if you're you're talking about going into the woods and you're you're feeling uh, a kinship with Fred Bear or uh, Art Young or Saxton Pope, uh, that I would encourage you to pursue that. Archers can be traditional archers as well, and in a traditional archery, as I understand it. Uh, you're talking about using traditional tackle. But the other side of that is dressing in the traditional clothing. And if you're a fan of Fred Bear, for example, going back to his early years when he had the, the uh, Pendleton uh, coat and he had the wool slacks, uh, he didn't wear camouflage. Uh, he just went out there in, in outdoor clothing of the grailing area, and he hunted. Mm -hmm. And as an archer, uh, I believe that's something that's, that's very much overlooked uh, from the traditional side. Um, yeah, we were it can be. It can be. Um, it And it really depends. I think, I think at this point, and, and, you know, I think you're probably... I know you're there black powder hunting too. Um, traditional, there's so much too traditional. There's so many elements to it and everybody's kind of on their own path. Um, but you, you get to the more modern traditionalists that are pretty much hunting with the traditional weapon, but they're not weapon, but traditional bow, but they're not going in, you know, very, they're still basically hunting as they would with any other, with a compound or anything else, just getting closer and whatnot. And then there's traditionalists who, you know, they don the fedora and they wear the wool, the wool shirt and the wool pants. Um, and then there's the primitive, like we had Ryan Gills on uh, a few episodes back and he's on the primitive side where he's hunting in the buckskin and, um, He's making self bows and he, he's doing all of that. And then you go, you go a little bit further back. It's like a lot of people have a line and that's the line they connect with. And some it's a progression. They'll start out at the top of the progression or the modern part of the progression and they work their way back to get a bigger thrill every single time or to find, to seek that connection a little bit deeper. Um, and then if they get that far, they might peel it back a little bit or maybe they'll flip flop like you were saying with personas where they'll go, okay, one day they're, from the, like you were saying, Saxon Pope and Art Young, or maybe Maurice Thompson or, or something like that. And then they, then they go forward and they're, they're like a Fred Bear or a Howard Hill. Um, 
Glen St. Charles. You know, they're they're bouncing all over the place. I guess it really just depends. And maybe it could maybe it just from the book they read recently. Um I know that I, I bounce around quite a bit. Um I enjoy to wear wearing the wool the most. Um but yeah, it's it's that's kind of where it is. And it seems like with you're saying traditional black powder hunting, you know, I there's there's percussion cap and there's the flint lock and then all the way up to the more modern, you know, it's not traditional. It's more, you're into your inlines and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I, I could see a lot of, you know, comparisons there, but I, I really like that element of, you know, getting into characters is something interesting that I've never really thought of getting into character before to do it. Um, thinking about what it was like in that, you know, I, of course I know Art Young and Saxon Pope, but I never thought of when I go hunting to think of like they might've thought, back then or what was going on then that's that's a whole other level well and you've raised a couple of points and one in particular you're talking about what they thought and um a part of that is what they wrote about and you have to go back and, and we do this in traditional black powder hunting we go back to the journals to the written word that exists from the 18th century, forget 18th century in my case, and you read uh, a journal. And if you're very lucky, it's something that's published. Some of these are available in, as papers in a library. Uh, and they're very hard to find. And if they're handwritten, they're almost impossible to read. Uh, and it's very difficult. But you go back and you read a passage and you think about it, and you might read something where they're talking about uh, taking a deer, and you sit there and you say, wow, I've done that. I know what that feels like, and I know what that individual did, and I know what they felt in that situation. The other side of that is reading, and you see a passage, and they're talking about how they did a stalk, how they did a setup, how they did a stand, um, what they did for practice, what they wore. And you just sat there and you say, ooh, okay, I haven't done that before. I think maybe I'm going to try that and see what it feels like. And this is what we do in the, in the, traditional, in the traditional black powder hunting. And, uh, it, you know, the same thing can apply in, you know, with the archery. Uh, they're just... And I think you have a lot of a lot of readers and a lot of listeners and followers, uh, you know, that are there from the archery side. And this is this is a real positive for getting out there with the archery. Um, we had occasion here a number of years ago to make self bows, and the gentleman that taught the class, um, he had a English long bow that was about 100, 90 to 100 pounds draw weight and I want to say 30 inches, but I'm not sure what it was. My goodness gracious, that bow was over six feet, six feet mm-hmm. tall. And as we got talking, he said, well, I have a friend of mine from England that has uh, a long bow like this and he hunts with it. And he dresses of the clothing of that time period which was back into the Middle Ages. And it's a whole new aspect to your hunting. And it's it's a whole bunch of fun. It just 
unbelievable. Yep, we've got a really small group in Michigan that I believe that my, my friend Paul Wilburn started it. And um, it's Knights of something. I wish I could think of the name of that group. Um, but that's very much what they do. Um, and again, they pick their period and they, they, they really get in and, and they do their research and that's a big part of what they do. Um, one of the, one of the uh, questions I was going to ask you is that I noticed that I, I see on your site that there's pictures of gatherings and whatnot that you attend. Um, I'm assuming you choose a character for those gatherings. Um, and how, how do you, how do you go about that? And can you, can you kind of like describe what a gathering might be like? Uh, do you, do you get, do you all, cause you might all pick a, do you all pick something from a similar era or how does that work? It depends on the situation. Depend. I, I, I'm sure you're talking about some of the pictures of hunting camps that I've posted. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't know if it's come up yet. Um, on my site, I've got a picture coming up, uh, on my snapshot Saturday that is, uh, a nighttime picture with a group of hunters around a campfire. Uh, and there's a full moon out. Uh, that was a hunting camp that was set up up at uh, Fairview, Michigan, a number of years ago. And it depends on how the camp is set and what the startup rules are, for lack of a better word, that, uh, that uh, apply to the camp. In that particular setting... Uh, you are allowed to come in, unload your your uh, camp gear, which is, in some people's case, is uh, uh, a relatively elaborate assortment of 18th century goods. Uh, others people uh, might come in with just a simple tent or a bedroll. But you get set up, vehicles are parked up over the hill, where they can't be seen, and then from the time you set foot into that camp until the time you leave that camp, you are in your persona or your time period. The one at Fairview, there was a variety of time periods that spanned 1760 uh, all the way up through about 1840. And that was very difficult to do, and there was a lot of times that that uh, um, you couldn't stay in character, as we say. Mm -hmm. uh, but other times you will have a camp that will all be set up in one time period, one scenario, one week, one month, one whatever snippet you take of history. Everybody in that camp is all part of that same of that same time period. Um, a part of that, going back to my personas, I hunt with a fellow uh, that is a ranger, uh, a British ranger, and in the last few years, he was centered on a very short period of time in the history of Fort Detroit under the siege of Pontiac in the summer and fall of 1763. Um, he hunts as a ranger assigned to Joseph Hopkins. And he only has a window of maybe two months or three months to be able to do that historically. 
One of the things that troubled me uh, for a number of times is we would be in the woods together hunting deer, turkey, squirrel, you know, whatever. And Daryl was reliving time in 1763, and I was reliving time in 1794. That's a generation apart. And a number of times we would we hunt separately, we go our own way, we get into our time period, we do what we're going to do, but we would come back or circle back and meet at a given tree. We might sit there and have a little bit of uh, venison jerky, uh, might sip some water, we might end up talking. But there was always a problem in talking back and forth because we were in different time periods. And that pulls you out, tends to pull you out of character. Well, I bet I'm, I, my head yeah. hurts kind of thinking about it, actually. <laughs> if you, that's why, that's why <laughs> I wanted to ask you the question. I was like, if you've got a bunch of people from different time periods and you try to stay at your own, that's like some kind of weird time travel paradox thing. <laughs> I can't even wrap my head around. Yeah, that, it is. <laughs> it is. So what I, what I did is I created the third persona here oh, about a year ago with Mykonok, which is the snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. And... Mykonok is, uh, again, a return captive that is hunting in the fall of 1763. So now when when Lieutenant Lang and I go into the woods, uh, we are at least in the same time period. Uh, there's a bit of a conflict there because my loyalty, uh, having grown up with the Ojibwe, and then now being on my own, my loyalty might not necessarily be with the British Crown, but uh, we overcome that when we're when we're in the woods. Man, that is wild. I just never, I never thought it was that deep. I mean, I read your, I've been reading your writing for a while, and I mean, in fact, you were one of the first people. Um, I think I picked up Michigan Wood and Water news at a gas station one time, and, and I had just started hunting. This was like back in 2009, 2010, and um, I wasn't writing about it yet. I, I, I'd always written, but I'd never written outdoor stuff. I, I just kind of wrote poems and things like that, you know, songs or whatever. And um, I read an article that you wrote, and I think Daryl Quidort was in that same magazine, which was one of the reasons why I bought it, because I was, you know, obviously a traditional archer, and that's what I was interested in. And I read yours, and that really made me want to write about the outdoors. And, you know, I think it was about a snowy day, and, and you were talking about the wool blanket and all that, and I was just like, wow, that's that's cool, you know, that's really that's really something and uh but i never imagined that it was as deep as it is like in your personal life too with your friends and whatnot like to not break character not break time period and everything that's just that's just really cool that's a whole new whole new level to this and i wanted to ask you um kind of from the writing side of it because you're talking about writing stories were you a writer before you started hunting or were you a hunter that started writing like how did that kind of like did you when the personas came is that when you started writing about it um are they are they locked like you know if that makes any sense oh yes it makes a lot of sense it's a hard question to answer i grew up hunting so i oh yeah yep. i have been a hunter since like since like i say since i was about 13 years old um in my Modern life, um, I, I worked in the family business, and as such, 
I wrote at a corporate or a business level most of the documents that were needed for the business. It was all technical writing. Um, and uh, the time came that, that uh, I needed to, to move on, and we sold the business. And the intent was, on my part, was to go into consulting because I had 35 years of small business experience, a successful small business experience, and I, I thought, okay, I'll go into consulting. And uh, the first two clients that I had required a series of written documents for doing a marketing program. And um, in the process of working with them, I started writing down some of the hunting stories because I had kept a journal over the years. And I wrote a hunting, a, tradi a traditional hunting story because I was into traditional hunting at that time. Um, and I sent it off to a publication. And back then, uh, you put everything together and you could send it on a CD, uh, but it got mailed. And I got an answer back in about 10 days that they accepted this, this article. And so I did another one, and then I wrote one for Woods and Water News, and I didn't hear back from them, and I sent them an email and said, I submitted this, this article, do you have any interest in it? And uh, Tom got back, you know, right back with me and says, oh yes, we loved it, it's already published and it's on the newsstand. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay, that's kind of cool, and... Their deadline was about two or three days after this. And I said something to my wife. I said, that's kind of short to get an article out. We think I ought to send another one to them. And she said, sure. So I spent a couple of days, wrote an outdoor story, another traditional outdoor story, sent it off, and I've been writing for them ever since. So the hunting and the writing have kind of been intertwined over the years. Uh, but in the last, well, I, this is 15, 16 years that I've done this. It's more of a means for me to share what I do because a lot of people don't know what traditional hunting is, traditional black powder hunting is. I can share what I do. I share the love of the outdoors and hopefully um, get people involved that aren't involved before. And I'm just absolutely thrilled that, that my writings in some way inspired you to write. That's that's very flattering yeah and and you're doing it and the thing is is you're 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 teaching people things but in an interesting way it's not i mean you see you see so many articles in hunting like i used to get like bow hunter magazine and things like that you know you'd, you'd get all kinds of hunting everybody's read hunting articles um and i i've talked to steve about this before where you basically it's an it's an a and a c it's like you started out you got up that day and c you ended with a deer killed or whatever that is. Um, and then you talk about your gear or whatever that is. That, that was the typical thing. When I read your article, I was like, there's, okay, this is, this is what I'm talking about. This is, he's capturing the moment almost like a character in a story. And you were. Um, but it's an interesting way to get somebody's attention and get somebody hooked on it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that got me into traditional archery to begin with is there was that story element there. I've always been a big fan of stories. Um, so let me ask you this. The historic element of this obviously unlocked a great passion inside of you. Are you more passionate about the actual hunting, the, the history and the story and the, and the personas or the actual hunting? Or is it an equal thing? 
Boy, did you open a can of Uh-oh. worms. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hard question to answer without going back to where we started and start talking about defining traditional black powder hunting. Gotcha. And probably the easiest way to do that is to look at traditional black powder hunting as three elements. There's the traditional element or the history. There's the black powder, which in the early years of this for me was mostly flintlocks. But now, not only for myself, but for a lot of other traditional hunters, it's become any arm that uses black powder as a propellant. And then the third part of it is the fair chase hunting. And to backtrack a little bit about something Steve asked early on with, with the difference between traditional being a flintlock as opposed to a, a percussion arm, what it really is in the context that I'm using traditional black powder hunting is it's any arm that uses black powder as a propellant. That opens the door all the way through the Civil War up through the 4570s, the buffalo guns, on into the turn of the century, up until the era when my grandfather hunted with a brass cartridge, Damascus barrel, exposed hammer, double barrel shotgun. And any of these guns throughout history that use black powder as propellant, it pushes it back too, to the match locks, um, the early guns of the of the uh, 1600s, for example, it broadens the entire spectrum of what you're looking at. And so to go back to what Steve had asked earlier, um, when I grew up and when I first took my hunter safety from Mr. Cohorst back in the early 60s, all of the hunter safety instructors made the admonishment that if that gun has a Damascus barrel, Damascus steel barrel, or if it has exterior hammers, you never, ever shoot it under any circumstances. It hangs on the wall. And they hammered that in because with the advent of smokeless powder, the higher pressures, it would blow those guns to bits because they were never designed for that kind of breech pressure. So for the long time, all the way up until, oh goodness gracious, mid-2000s, those guns were always wall hangers. Now there is a whole group of folks that are older that remember those guns when they were kids. They've got them out. They're loading black powder as a propellant in the cartridges. They're shooting sporting clays. They're shooting trap. And they're also hunting with those guns. And in that time period of the, the breech-loading uh, black powder shotguns, you have quite an era there that wool was king, but you have Filson, you have folks that will dress as English gentlemen hunters, um, I had at the Woods and Water News show a couple of years a gentleman that came in that we had had this discussion. 
he came back a year later and he said, I'm all about the dogs. I'm all about the partridge hunting. And he said, I have my grandfather's double barrel shotgun. I had a gunsmith check it over. I've learned how to load the shells with black powder and I'm having a ball hunting partridge with black powder shotgun over my dogs. So the traditional history period comes way up into the 1920s or so um, as far as what, what history you can use. In looking at the three elements, the history side of it, you may go out hunting in a morning and you've read something in a journal and it's all about learning or practicing it in the wilderness classroom and that's your intent when you go out. Then the next thing you know, you've got a deer or a turkey or a squirrel, some sort of wild games enters uh, the stage that you're uh, reenacting on. And now the emphasis goes to hunting. And it's all about how do I stalk that deer? How do I bring that turkey in? How can I get closer to that squirrel? Uh, and you're all about the traditional skills, again, based in history, but how you're doing the, the, the pursuit of the game itself. Right. And then when you get to the point of that moment of truth, then the black powder kicks in on how well do you know your smoothbore or your rifle? Have you studied it? Have you practiced with it at the range? Do you have enough proficiency with it? to follow through and make a clean, humane kill of that game animal. So to tie this all together, as you go through any traditional hunt, the pendulum can swing back and forth from the historical side to the black powder side to the hunting side in a heartbeat. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I, yes, I do. And it's funny that you, you, you started talking about the, the different guns, Denny, because that was actually, uh, I, you know, I'll admit it, that was probably the part I wanted to hear the most about because um, I'm kind of a, uh, I'm just a, a techie when it comes to stuff like that. But you mentioned the, the shotgun. The, the, actually, the only long gun that I still own is an old, um, it's around a 16-gauge Damascus steel side-by-side exposed hammer shotgun that i've never even fired it it's I, I picked it up at a pawn shop years ago and it's just kind of been sitting in my safe since then but i did want to ask you i know that um there's at least three different um guns tied to uh, the three personas that you've kind of already mentioned so um how about going just a, a little bit of detail about each one of those um you know, what, what are they, what are their, you know, maybe a little bit about the, what makes them unique and, and any of the, the period, the period specific details around those, those weapons. Well, let me start with the, um, the old post hunter that's hunting for the trading post, because that's the, the, the main persona that I carried, um, well, up until 2012, basically. And that individual hunts with a Northwest trade gun. The Northwest trade gun was a specific pattern 
of gun that were manufactured in England, shipped over to this country, traded by the thousands to Native Americans, to settlers, anybody that could plop down 10 prime beaver pelts uh, could get one of these guns. They were manufactured by contract, had different makers made different bore diameters. In today's world, the predominant bore diameter is 20 gauge, which would be 0.615 inside bore diameter. Being a smooth bore of that era, they are cylinder bored, which means they are basically a gas pipe inside. The diameter is the same from breech to muzzle. There's no choke, and as a result, that limits your pattern as opposed to having a gun that either has a choke in it, a jug choke, screw-in choke, right, whatever right. you apply to it. The original guns didn't have that, so we hunt the way they hunted with those original guns. In my particular case, uh, my Northwest gun, it was built after one uh, from the 1790s, which was the time period that I chose when I got started into this. And I wanted a smooth bore as opposed, I wanted to hunt deer. That was my first choice. But I also was a bird hunter, uh, duck hunter, Love small game, so I wanted to be able to hunt both uh, the upland game and the deer, and I decided that the only way I could do that was to have a smoothbore. And I, I started out with looking at three or four different guns that were available in that era. I settled on the Northwest gun primarily because it was traded a lot here in the Great Lakes. And it's a flintlock. Uh, it's got a 36-inch barrel. It's got a full stock. It's made out of cherry. I built the gun uh, myself. So I'm actually hunting with a gun that I built with round balls that I cast myself. I mean, you can't get much more do-it-yourself than this. I'm wearing clothing that I made, moccasins that I made. You know, uh, you're kind of really deep into it at that point in time. Right. Over the years... That in the early years, guns, these early guns, one of the things you'll run across a lot of times in the old journals, that if an individual had a gun for any amount of time, it earned a name. And so this gun didn't have a name until the turkey season started here in Michigan. And I drew a tag for up in Alcona County. Uh, for a fall turkey hunt. And I ended up, uh, was had a farmer that, that allowed me to hunt on his farm. He said there had been some birds over on his north fields. I went over there, couldn't find a darn thing other than some some dust bowls. And, and I ended up, uh, was just kind of roaming around, still hunting. And I, basically, I was looking for the following spring if I was lucky enough to draw a tag. And lo and behold, out in the middle of this alfalfa field, here comes a flock of about 90 turkeys heading for a little maple woods. And I backtracked and stayed behind the hills. I got into that woods, laid on the bound or the, the east side where I thought the birds were going to come in at, and 
I got mosquitoes flying around. I had a daddy long leg spider that was walking up and down the barrel of the gun. I didn't want to do anything to move. Perchance one of these birds would see it. These birds came up over the hill towards that woods in waves. And they were about 10, 15 birds wide. And there was no way you could get a shot with just one tag in your pocket. And I'm going, oh, no, they're going to walk into the woods. They're going to walk all around me, and I'm not going to get a shot. And after about the third wave, um, for whatever reason, there was a couple birds that walked off to one side. There was one hen that was standing there by herself, and she was about 20 paces out. And the the range of my smoothbore is about 25 paces with the uh, cylinder bore. And I shot the bird, and I had been told very early on in my turkey hunting, the minute you shoot that bird, get to them and get your feet on their feet so they can't run away if you didn't hit them good. And I ran out into that flock of turkeys that were standing there looking at each other like, where did the thunder come from? I got hit on the shoulder with one bird that took off. I had a couple others that went over top of me. And I got my moccasins on that hen's feet, and I'm standing there, and there is turkey feathers floating (laughs) in the air, almost like snow. And I stood there, and I started laughing, and all of a sudden I said, that's the name of the gun, Old Turkey Feathers. (laughs) And so that's, you know, that's where that came from. But uh, the other thing, and that gun... I actually used that gun for Muscoa Gauche. So I have two characters using the same gun, and that's historically that's not good. I just haven't had a chance to build myself another another trade gun. Sounds like but a I good did. excuse for it to me. <laughs> well, I got I got grandkids that are getting a higher priority than I am on that. <laughs> I understand that. But oh boy. But uh, when I did Mickinock, the snapping turtle early Northwest guns were available in this area in 1763. There weren't many of them. And I wanted Mickinock to be a completely different person, a completely different character. So what I've started out doing with that character is I'm using a French fusil de chasse, which again is it's the French version of the Northwest trade gun. This gun was traded to the Native Americans in this area, but from the 1740s up to about the 1760s or so. And this is, again, a smooth bore. This one happens to be 615 cylinder board, so it's a 20 gauge. Uh, it has full stock, um, a 42-inch barrel, flintlock, and there's no set triggers on these smooth bores like you would have on a modern Hawking rifle or reproduction Hawking rifle, I should say. But uh, and that's what I hunt with. Now, are you are you, so? I just have to ask: Are you typically shooting um, uh, individual or, or pellets, or you do do you shoot a, a, a solid projectile, or is it a combination of both? I shoot anything that that gun anything will that'll go down the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. And and with that, um, 
I shoot a round ball for deer, uh, sometimes coyote, uh, and when I load that ball, I load it in the style of the time period. If you look at the old inventories, there never was were, were wads or commercial wads available at the trading post. You you went in and you plopped down ten prime beaver pelts for a trade gun. You put down a prime beaver pelt for two handfuls of black powder. In that era, it was always referred to as gunpowder. In my writings, I always refer to it as black powder, so somebody, heaven forbid, right. would not use, you know, smokeless. smokeless right. mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you would put down another beaver pelt for 30 round balls, roughly a pound, that would fit the gun. And if you wanted shot, that was an additional pelt. So for 13 pelts, you get the gun, the gunpowder, you get round balls, and you get birdshot. Um and with the smooth bores, um, I I shoot sporting clays with old turkey feathers. Uh, that gun likes eights. A lot of people shooting black powder uh, sporting clays will use nines. Um, some guns will like seven and a halves. So you just have to learn what your gun likes. Mm-hmm. Um, I will shoot uh, sixes for rabbits. I used to shoot fours for turkeys. Fours didn't pattern well in my wife's trade gun so I was almost out of fours I bought a bag of fives and so I they shoot great and my, my gun will shoot anything uh, and so I shoot fives for turkey um, if I want to shoot waterfowl years ago before you had the non-toxic uh, restriction uh, I would use lead for and I would go all the way up to BB size lead for for uh, geese but uh I use bismuth now. Bismuth uh, loads about the same as lead. It's the next element lighter, so you have to add about 10% more shot uh, than you would for lead. Um, I use buckshot for bobcat and coyote if we're calling, trying to call them in close, uh, and of course then, then the round ball. Now, what for yeah. for for say uh, a deer-sized animal with the the round ball in the smooth bore? You know, what's the what's your effective range? Um, and I'm not trying to I'm on, not trying to nail it, you it down. depends it's more on of a no no no. It, it depends on how old you are <laughs> and how bad your eyes are. <laughs> okay, the old turkey feathers. When my eyes were better was effective out to 75 yards and you learn that effective distance by going to the range when my wife started uh, for example we went to the range she could consistently hit a six inch circle uh, using a round ball out of her gun at 35 yards Uh, that gun will shoot much you know shoot that accurate to a greater distance but her ability limited her to the 35 yards so her effective distance for that gun is 35 yards in the old days my effective distance with old turkey feathers was 75 yards the gun would the round ball would start to tail off at about 85 to 90 yards and you have to realize that the there's no spin put on the ball to stabilize it 
as it goes down range like there would be with a rifle. Right, and that's you to sit, uh, honestly seventy-five yards sounds pretty impressive considering that because that's what I, I was actually expecting it to be a a, a bit closer, um, mm-hmm. just because there there was no rifling. So that's impressive. Well, in in my case now with the restriction of my eyes, I really don't like to shoot over fifty yards, and that's. You, you can see now that my effective distance went out to 75 yards. Now, with my limitations, it comes back to, to 50 yards. And it really depends on the individuals. Um, but in a smoothbore situation, um, you guys are probably too young to remember Hoyt Wilhelm. But Hoyt Wilhelm was a, was a fabulous knuckleballer. And when he threw the knuckleball, he didn't know, his catcher didn't know where it was going to go because it basically he was throwing it with some velocity and it had no spin to it and when it had no spin the wind and 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 the current would move it up down right left wherever and it never went the same place twice and the same thing happens with a smooth bore shooting a round ball uh, that 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 ball as it goes down range depending on what the the uh uh, wind velocity is all sorts of environmental circumstances. Sure. An old turkey feather, so 85 yards with the basic load that I shoot, uh, that ball will start to tail off. If I increase the powder, I could extend that a little bit. There's no reason to. Uh, I hunt with the idea that I'm going to go for the best shot. And like in Tammy's case, when, when she took her first deer, uh, her effective distance was 35 yards. Her shot was 22 paces. Okay, so we got into a situation where we were going to have the deer in on top of us, uh, where we didn't have to worry that we were going to see a nice buck at, you know, 50 yards and not going to be able to shoot it. But uh, now, do, and it depends on do, on the individual. It depends on the arm. Do all three of those are the the ones that you've mentioned? Do they all shoot the? I'm guessing it would be what triple F. As far as the black powder grain, or is it more coarse or finer, or what are you what are you typically shooting in those? Well, originally the gunpowder that you got at a trading post was about one and a half F. That's still available. Some people still shoot that in smoothbore. Oh, so that's really coarse stuff. Hmm. That's coarser stuff. Wow. Okay. Um, then, in up until. The late 90s, the rule of thumb was a bore under 50 caliber was 3F, 3F black powder. A bore greater, 50 caliber or greater, was 2F. Then as people just kept experimenting and the powders got better, a lot of people that were shooting, well, there weren't a lot of people shooting smooth bores up until the last 10 or 15 years. But when people got shooting smooth bores, some of them had just 3F powder because that's what they used in their 50 caliber right. flintlock rifle. So they used that in their smooth bore. They found that it shot well and that it uh, um, was cleaner burning. You don't get the fouling you get with 2F. The problem you have, and uh, you have to warn people about this, is that when you're talking about a measured amount of powder you must know what the granulation is that that measured amount is because of the airspace because 
Well, the actually, it's the size of the granule. And if you think about it, 2F is a bigger granule than 3F. So the smaller granule has a greater surface area. It burns faster. As it burns faster, it increases the breach pressure faster. And you have to be very careful because... It will, the breach pressure on 3F is about 25% greater than 2F. So if you're shooting a load of 2F in a trade gun and you want to go to 3F, you've got to make an adjustment in how many grains of 3F you shoot. And I didn't know the, the, the burn rate, or I guess I didn't think, I was thinking more, it seemed like I remembered that as far as um, by volume, the coarser actually i'm trying to remember how i want to say this by by weight the coarser weighed less because again you had the the larger the larger grains and you end up ended up with more um um dead airspace around it because it didn't pack mm-hmm. as tightly together but i think we're saying the yes. same thing so yeah oh, that's yes. all very yeah. interesting very cool stuff now now one of the things you <laughs> When you're shooting black powder, you have a number of opportunities out there. You can shoot at a local club. You can go to the state shoot here in Michigan, for example. You can go to the national shoot down to Friendship. Um, You can uh, shoot woods walks, any number of things that that you can go out and shoot. Most of the competitive shooting in a smoothbore, the folks will shoot a patched round ball. There is no historical basis for that. It's a carryover from from shooting uh, a rifle with a patched ball. It increases the accuracy, and because it increases the accuracy, shooter, smoothbore shooters like it because they're competitive. They want to win. And, but in my particular case, as a traditional hunter, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to recreate how they hunted. Sure. So when I load my trade gun, I'll put the appropriate powder charge down the barrel. I'll take two oak leaves that are as dry as I can get them. I'll break the stems off them, wad them up in a little ball about the size of the round ball that I'm going to shoot, tamp them down tight on the powder, drop a round ball down the barrel, tamp it tight on the powder, and put one leaf rolled up over top of it to hold it in place. So I'm wadding with leaves, or I might use grass, uh, basically, whatever I find in the woods, I am using to uh, to wad that gun and to shoot it. The accuracy, you get a little bit more of an open group doing that than you would if you used the patched round ball. But you're talking uh, an inch and a half group as opposed to a three-quarter inch, inch and a quarter group. Not a lot you know, to worry about. And I do the same thing with the birdshot. Um, I load it with natural natural wadding, which is what was done in the 18th century. Wow, interesting. I, I, I figured you were just using the cloth and whatnot. That's that's no. that's great. I like it. Um, okay, you, well, you've pretty much, man. You're this has been fascinating, Denny, and you've answered all the questions except for one. Okay, so I, mm-hmm. I I'm a complete beginner. If I wanted to do to start doing what you're doing, what would you recommend as far as a firearm? I mean, what would what advice would you give me? When we do the shows, 
we will have a table laid laid out with various uh, guns that we use. I'll have my trade gun. I'll actually hold my trade gun. We'll have uh, Tammy's trade gun on the table. We'll have her target rifle, which is a 40 caliber flintlock uh, Southern Mountain rifle style. We'll have uh, the fusil to chase. I might have a double barrel percussion shotgun there. And then I'll have the Hawken percussion 50 caliber Hawken rifle that uh, everybody started with in Michigan here when they first started the muzzleloading season. And my advice to people is, depending on what you want to hunt, what you want to shoot, start with that 50 caliber Hawken rifle. And the reason for that is, if you put feelers out uh, among family members, business associates, or whatever, within a matter of a couple days, you will get somebody that will pop up and say, oh yeah, I bought one of those back in 1980-whatever. And it's sitting in my gun safe. I've only shot it a couple of times, and I'd be glad to sell it. You usually can buy those anywhere from $75 up to about $225, $250, $275, something like that. And it's funny. Even Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's funny you mentioned that because that is exactly what my dad has, and... That's pretty much coming to me because <laughs> okay. he, he underwent well, it. Well, and the, 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 the one thing you have to check is run a patch down that barrel, or if you've got a bore light, drop it down there or check it, because what happened a lot of times, people treated their, their black powder guns like they were uh, a modern, modern gun shooting smokeless powder. They would shoot them, they put them back in the safe when they were done, and then they take them out two months, six months, whatever, and there was no problem with it. The black powder is very corrosive to the bore. And a lot of these guns that you, I say, I'll say a lot, a fair number of the guns that you'll find in tucked away in somebody's gun safe weren't cleaned completely. And the barrels, the bores weren't oiled or greased. And halfway down the barrel, it's all rust. And the gun is basically a wall hanger. But you can find good guns. And yeah, what I was going to say there, too, is in that era, too, uh, you can find uh, percussion smoothbores. And they run in the same price range. A double-barrel shotgun is a little pricier. Um, you'll see them from time to time from $400 to $600. And you have to be careful with them to know whether or not uh, they have a recess breach. Some do, some don't, which means there's a hollow down in the breech. You have to get enough powder in that barrel to fill that hollow. And you can find that out by taking that gun to a gunsmith. They can check it and they can tell you. But uh, the big thing is getting out to a club, having somebody at a club teach you how to shoot that uh, black powder gun safely, and then just plain go hunting with it. I like to tell people that from the traditional hunting perspective, you can go squirrel hunting with that 50 caliber Hawken. My advice always is check with your local Department of Natural Resources office. If you have officers that you know that are in your area, make sure that they will approve that for you. Because you can be accused of poaching because you have a 50 caliber round ball loaded 
in a muzzleloader and you're out in the woods out of deer season. Sure, sure. Okay. But for the most part, most of the officers around here have been real good about it. You tell them what you're doing and, you know, telling them you're getting started. You just start out with that 50 caliber gun. And, you know, if you end up, you know, hunting woodchucks, uh, hunting uh, coyotes with it, uh, and then hunting deer, okay, that's where you start. You want to go that route, and you want to start looking at a time period. What interests you? Because whatever time period you pick, you're going to end up looking for a gun that's relative to that time period. The uh, the three uh, points that we always emphasize is your time period, your geographical location, and what is the uh, social standing of the individual that you want to portray. If you want to portray an English nobleman that's come to the United States, they're going to have a completely different set of clothing. They're going to have a much nicer gun than for, say, um, a settler that's uh, just moved into a homestead here in Michigan and uh, that individual, it's all he can do to scrub together enough money to buy uh, a used trade gun or a used smoothbore. But get into it, hunt a little bit with it, work with what time period you want to look at, what kind of person you want to be when you hunt traditionally, and then choose a gun from there. And if you buy, if you go out and you go to a black powder club and oh I've got a really nice Beck uh, 45 caliber flintlock rifle here it's great for deer hunting you buy it and then you find out yeah, Beck didn't make guns in the time period that you're hunting now you have to turn around sell it and buy yourself something different and it's an expensive mistake uh, you know just starting out I bet well that's good advice thank you for that well Danny I think we've uh pretty much covered everything we we wanted to cover i'm sure uh after i think about this for the next 24 48 hours i'm gonna come up with at least a dozen questions that's okay <laughs> we can do this again we sure can nick anything else you wanted to cover before i kind of wrap this no up? i don't think so i'm pretty much absorbing everything we just talked about um <laughs> yeah it's, it's so it's, uh i i think we might have to at some point denny um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot to take in. I know my dad's planning on running me through the whole black powder, uh, 101 course when I come, when I go to visit him next time, he hunted, he hunted with that, that hawking for years and I was kind of excited that I wanted to get into it. So I've got a lot to learn cause I've never even fired one. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to, I'm anxious to try it out and to, and to get into that. So this has been great. Well, with your love of traditional archery, you're a natural to fall into this. And once you smell that black powder and burn black powder, and once you shoot a couple of shots, uh, you're going to be like my grandson was after his second shot with, with Tammy's trade gun. He looked at his dad and he said, can we get a flintlock? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. And that must be pretty cool for you, too. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Danny, it's been it's been really great. I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, spend with us and and answer our questions and 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 really kind of immerse us in the whole traditional black powder hunting world. Well, thank you for having me. This we're just scratching the surface, as I say, and it's been a lot of fun. It always is fun to talk about this, and and it's something too that somebody can. Uh, you don't have to every time you go out. You don't have to go out and hunt in a traditional manner. Uh, you can mix it in with your with your archery, uh, you know, with your waterfowl hunting, whatever. Uh, it, it's something you can you can do one day, do a you know, do a different style hunting the next day. So, and I would say to you to you fellas, and also to your readers, the same way I always sign off: be safe and may God bless you. You know, it's funny because as I have a, a very similar closing. Uh, before we get to that, though, I do want to remind all of our listeners to uh, be sure to go out and check out Denny's website. Again, it's traditionalblackpowderhunting.com. There's a lot of great information out there, and, and also you can spend a good amount of time uh, reading about uh, some of the various personas that, that Denny's talked about here. But in the meantime, um, I do want to remind everybody, as I always do, to get out there and enjoy our great outdoors. And whenever you can, be sure you take a kid along. Be safe, be responsible, and be sure to set a good example for your fellow outdoors men and women. So long, everyone.